Our message this morning is entitled, Our Substitute, and primarily will be taken from the book of Isaiah chapter 53 and an interesting portion of Scripture in Leviticus chapter 16. Last week we spoke to you about how the Old Testament law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That is to say, the intent of the law was to train and prepare what you might refer to as the believing world at that time, the Old Testament nation of Israel, the people who had the oracles of God, who followed Jehovah, who attempted to obey his commandments, Israel, it was intended to train them for and prepare them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that message, we reflected on, we learned how the law, number one, communicated God's holy standard. And as we expounded upon that from Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we realized that the intent of the law, the spirit behind the letter, was so that it went to even as far as to govern our thoughts and our desires. We talked about how a man might say, I've never committed adultery against my spouse, but according to what God intended by that law, if we look upon a woman with lust in our hearts, we've committed adultery already in our hearts, and so we are guilty of adultery. How Scripture, yes, said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not kill, but God's meaning behind that was that if we harbor hatred or resentment or anger towards a brother or a sister without cause, we're guilty of murder already in our heart. And as we came to the conclusion of that matter in last week's message, the only thing that we can do then is praise God because he has done for us what was impossible. He has saved us through the death of his son. God's righteous standard is so holy that none of us, no matter how good we think we are, have any hope in our own works. Our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it communicates God's holy standard, especially when you understand it through the light of what Christ said about it in his personal ministry. It communicated then our own sinfulness, the fact that we're all sinners. We've all violated through God's intended meaning of all of the Ten Commandments alone, we've all violated every single one of those commands. God said, do not, and certainly we have done. And so we are sinful, and because of that, we deserve God's wrath. And number three, we learned that the Old Testament law, and this is going to be something that we talk about today, foreshadowed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It foreshadowed Christ in terms of his holiness that is to say, every lamb, every bullock, every firstborn that was to be offered to God had to be without spot and without blemish. But it also foreshadowed the fact that he would die a sacrificial death because every one of those animals that was offered to him had to die. The blood had to be shed and then applied in the holiest of holies in the temple of God. And so the law in those senses served as a schoolmaster to bring us to the time of Christ. And praise God, we live in the day of faith. That faith has come. The Lord Jesus has come and ushered in his New Testament. And so we look back, as we said last week, with a hindsight of 2020 vision, understanding what each and every one of those commandments was pointing towards and conveying to us. 
Lastly, we considered, in light of the impossibility of procuring our own salvation, the gospel of Christ, that we have salvation through Christ. The gospel is good news. It is the message that Christ has paid the debt that we could not pay, and he gave us his holiness. He is our righteousness. He lived a perfect life, and then he suffered the death that you and I deserved upon the cross of Calvary, saving us from our sins. If you've been following along on Wednesday nights on our live stream, you know that we've considered the early chapters of the book of Luke. First, we looked at the reaction of Joseph and Mary to what the angel told them about Jesus, and then we looked at the reaction of Simeon and Anna to who were in the temple waiting for the coming of God's Messiah and how this baby Jesus was to be named Jesus, a name that literally meant Savior and salvation. Jesus saved us from our sins. Today's message, being entitled Our Substitute, is going to be and expanding upon that concept that we considered last week as we brought our thoughts to a close, we continue that line of thought exploring the doctrine of, and you might want to write this down, penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, you might be wondering, what does that mean? That's a very complex theological term. Sometimes the Bible is complex, sometimes theology is complex, and we need to learn the theology of Scripture. We ought to all be systematic theologians. God's Word uses such complicated terms as atonement and reconciliation, sanctification, predestination, justification, regeneration. And all of these, what we think sometimes are complex terms, reveals unto us, communicates unto us certain aspects of God's saving us from our sins. Now, as we introduce that concept for you today, we say just in brief that this concept of Penal substitutionary atonement is the doctrine that asserts that Christ, being perfect, represented us and suffered for us in our stead upon the cross of Calvary. Now, that first word there, penal, means it comes from the same root as the word penalty, and it has reference to suffering as a criminal. And so we use the word every day, though we don't use that word, we use the word penalty. When we talk about someone suffering for the things that they've done, if they're a criminal and they're tried and they're convicted, that is a punitive matter. We often like to emphasize the fact that criminals receive punishment and penalty and children receive discipline and chastening. And Scripture uses both of those frameworks to describe God's dealings with people in the world. There is a punitive suffering, a penalty that the wicked pay in the second coming of Christ in God's prison in the lake of fire, and they'll receive according to the things that they have done. You and I, however, are children of God, and as children, instead of suffering from God as a judge, God does chasten us as children, and so in our lives we do many times suffer the chastening of God, but you see, chastening and penalty, punishment, are two separate concepts. Now, I think more than anyone else here in the congregation, you might talk to Brother Jeff about this after church because he was both a police officer and is a parent. And I think he could tell you that there's a difference in the way that the justice system deals with criminals and the way that he dealt with his children. God doesn't deal with us as with condemned criminals because he has saved us from our sins. He deals with us as children 
And so the only sort of, you might refer to as wrath, the only sort of punishment or dealings with that we receive from God is in the form of chastening, and I should say not in the form of suffering. He deals with us as with children. This concept today has reference to penalty. It has reference to being condemned by a legal system. Now, we understand that in our country as we attempt to deal with everyone with equity and have a fair and just system of justice. The word just there is the root of our term for justice, and we have a justice department and a justice system, and it's very much concerned with that which is right, that which is equitable, penalty, and punishment for crime. This is, as we consider today, God's dealing with his son on our behalf as if he were guilty and deserved the penalty that you and I deserved. And so this has reference, number one, to the punishment of criminals. The second term in our theological concept that we introduce to you today is substitutionary. Now, every single one of us grew up going to probably a public school, if not a private school, And within that system, you have what are known as substitute teachers. We know what the word substitute means. Some of you that are diabetic, you might think about sugar substitutes. Substitute is when you place something in the place of something else. A substitute is when you place something in the place of something else. A substitute teacher will come in and teach the class for the teacher who is absent. Now, we homeschool, so there are no substitute teachers. There are no snow days. There are no weather days. The children just have to suffer through it all. When COVID-19 hit and all the kids got to go home because we didn't know what we were dealing with, we didn't know how to handle it, we didn't know what was taking place, and everyone was afraid, and they closed all the schools. The poor little homeschool kids still had to do school. All their friends were wandering around the neighborhood. The local homeowners association began to complain about the nomadic teenagers wandering through the neighborhood seemingly without a home to go to. And yet the homeschool kids, guess what they had to do? They had to do all their school. And they whined. And they complained. And they grumbled. But they don't get out of it. But those of us that went to public school, we know what it means to have a substitute. Those of you that, again, might be diabetic, you might substitute any number of synthetic sweeteners for sugar. You put it in the place of it. Christ is our substitute in the sense that he suffered the wrath that we deserved. God, upon the cross, looked at his son as his son was suspended between heaven and earth, and he judged Christ on the cross as if Christ were us as if he had lived the lives that we lived. And so he is our substitute. And then lastly, that word atonement conveys the concept of reconciliation. The word atonement is an interesting word in the English language. It's a combination of two words and then the suffix, at one meant, at one meant. And so we have this word then atonement, which means at one with God. And so this word atonement in the New Testament translates from the same word that so often translates reconciliation. Reconciliation. God and man are reconciled 
through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ who has made for us the atonement, who was the atonement for us. He has made us at one with God the Father through his death upon the cross. Now this hails back to a specific sacrifice made by the high priest on what is known as the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. It was the holiest day of the entire year for the nation of Israel, the Feast of Atonement. In our modern day, on our modern calendars, it's Yom Kippur, if I pronounced that right, and I probably didn't, and that's okay. But that is the day still on our modern calendars that is observed by those who are still of the Jewish religion as the Day of Atonement. It's an interesting and it's also a heartbreaking thing to think about, the Day of Atonement in today's time. What was that day about? We'll see what they did on that day as we bring our message today to a close. But it involved a sacrifice, an offering, in the holiest of holies, made by the high priest, and the atonement, the making together at one between that nation in a ceremonial sense and God, and it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how sad must it be for a Jew in today's time, a Jewish person, to come to the Day of Atonement without a high priest, without a temple, without a holiest of holies, without an Ark of the Covenant, without a bullock that is offered, without two goats that are offered, without a ram that is offered, a feast of atonement without atonement. I think one of the most staggering things where I end their religious position to consider would be if that is the religion that the true God has instituted in the world, why is it no longer able to be practiced? After the death of Christ, it wasn't but less than one generation and that city had been judged, the temple destroyed, the city burned, and everything that they knew as Old Testament Jews came to an end. Why? Because God's purpose with it was fulfilled. That ought to have made them stop and think. And yet, sadly, because they were given to judicial blindness, it did not. A day of atonement without temple, holiest of holies, ark, high priest, and sacrifice. But that was their most holy day in the Old Testament, one that, as we'll see today, was instituted by God. Now, the first passage that we want to consider today is found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 and continuing through verse 21. You know that 2 Corinthians 5.21 is my favorite passage in all of the Bible. Sister Colleen made me a plaque, and it's hung upon the wall of my office, right under a painting that I attempted to paint in the corner of my office. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My favorite passage, one that, because we attempt to go from whatever passage we begin at and run to the cross as quickly as we can, I try to put into every sermon whether you think it fits with the context or not. <laughs> because we are here because he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is central 
It is the core of the gospel message. God, who is holy, made his own dear son to be sin for us as he hung upon the cross that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Now we'll begin reading in verse 17. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you are in Christ, if you are a saved person, if you have been quickened or regenerated, you are a new creature. That is to say, a new creation. That means the identical power that was used to create the universe at the beginning of time was used upon you in bringing you, drawing you from death in sin to life in Christ. You have been quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. How did God create the universe at the beginning of time? God said, let there be light. God said, let the earth bring forth seed. God spoke the universe into existence. How did God quicken you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins? By the voice of the Son of God, they that hear shall live. John chapter 5 and verse 24 and 25. How do you know if you are one who has been called from death to life? If you hear the words of the gospel and you believe it's because you have passed from death unto life and you shall not come into condemnation but Christ has quickened you and so whosoever believeth hath eternal life the eternal life is why you can believe and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus now it doesn't say you have a new creature it says you are a new creature that was debated some years ago. Do we have a new creature or are we a new creature? Well, one of my good friends in the ministry, Elder Daryl Chambers, asked the question, is there a difference in the statement, I am a dog or I have a dog? Now, I have a dog, but I trust that I'm not a dog. It doesn't say I have a new creature. It says I am a new creature. You are a new act of creation. God has created you anew in Christ Jesus. You did not spiritually evolve to being a saved person. You are a miracle of grace, an act of divine decree, divine fiat, as so many theologians referred to it. God has spoken to your dead soul, live, and like Lazarus, you came back to life. You came to life, as it were. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, that is, in salvation, who hath reconciled us to him by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, what do I mean by that? That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God in Christ reconciles his elect to him, and then we, as ambassadors of Christ, are given the word of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. 
And so we publish reconciliation, but this publishing also comes with, with a what we see here, a beseeching. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And so we have past tense, we are reconciled to God through Christ, but then future sense, we beseech you to be reconciled to God. Now, I understand that to mean that we would have you turn to God who has reconciled you in Christ. And so you reconcile yourself to him as he has reconciled you to him through his son. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement. Now, I want to turn over to the book of Isaiah chapter 53 and consider one of the most vivid prophecies of the Lord and his work. This is one of the four servants' songs in the book of Isaiah, poems, poetry about the suffering servant of our Lord who would come and die for us. And it begins in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Again, there are four of these. This is the last of the suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These are poems about this suffering servant of the Lord who would come. Scripture is full of prophecies about the Lord Jesus, and he was referred to as prophetically as a triumphant king. He was referred to as an anointed Christ. The word Christ and anointed are the same. The Old Testament word anointed and the New Testament word Christ are the same concept. He was the Messiah. And as much as he was described as a victorious, conquering, triumphant king who would not fail nor be discouraged, Isaiah chapter 42, Jesus was also prophetically described as a suffering servant who would suffer and die for the people of God. Now, Old Testament Israelites would read these passages and the tension between those two concepts, and many of them came to the conclusion that there must be two messiahs, one that is a victorious king and one who is a suffering servant, because how can he be both a triumphant king and a suffering servant that even his own people were ashamed of a man who is despised and rejected as a root out of dry ground. Again, as we said last week and today, we have the hindsight of 20, or the 2020 hindsight, the benefit of hindsight, which is 2020, I should say. We look back and we understand that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead made flesh, verily God and verily man, the word that was made flesh that took upon him the form of a servant, he humbled himself, though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He became a servant. He bled, he suffered, and he died. But he rose again the third day, triumphant over sin and Satan and death. And after 40 days, he ascended to glory where he sits on the right hand of the Father on the throne of David today, where he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. 
he must reign. As he returns again the second time, he doesn't come again as that meek and lowly suffering servant. No, he returns as a triumphant king, avenging his people and destroying his enemies. And so he is both the suffering servant and the triumphant king. This passage, Isaiah 53, was a favorite among early Christian apologists. The field of apologetics is interesting. How do you defend the faith? You know that that word there, apologetics, comes from a Greek word. We use it as apology in today's time. And it doesn't mean to tell someone you're sorry in the original language. It meant to defend. That's why an apology was originally explaining or defending your actions. But the word defend and defense... When Paul and Peter and other Bible writers would use it, it came from that word. When Paul gave his answer, the word there in the original language was that same word for apologia, apologetics. Early Christian apologists would use Isaiah 53 as their chief text, one of their chief texts, for defending the faith. Apologetics today is one of those fields where you have classical, you have presuppositional, you have evidential and historical. You have all of these different methods that pastors and theologians employ to defend the faith. If you read the writings of Justin Martyr, who was an early, an early preacher and theologian involved in apologetics, he so often used Isaiah 53 to defend the notion of Christ's coming. Prophecy was one of their main ways of defending the identity of Jesus. Why do you think that is? They can point back to the coming of Christ into the world and the hundreds of prophecies he fulfilled, more than 360. And they can say, you see, my grandparents, they saw him. Oh, they knew he was from Nazareth. They knew that he was crucified. They knew that they pierced his hands and his feet, as as Psalm 22 says. They knew that he was from Egypt. They remember John the Baptist, the forerunner in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4. They were there. They saw these prophecies unfold before them. And they would mightily defend the faith by way of these prophetic references to Christ. This is one of the favorites of early Apologists. Let's begin reading in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. What is that giving us prophetically? Christ would be so beaten, he would be so abused, that it would be hard to recognize him as a human being as he hung upon the cross of Calvary, as he was very high. He was marred. Imagine the way that they pummeled him, the swelling in his face. They pulled the hair of his beard out. They put him over a stump and they scourged him. They whipped him. His flesh would be torn down to the bone of his back. He was beaten, he was smote in the head with a reed, a crown of thorns was dug into his brow. 
He was so abused that his appearance was marred. His visage, the word there, visage, means appearance. More than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle many nations with what? With his blood. Because he has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. For that which had not been told them shall they see. Referring to the revelation of the gospel to Gentiles like you and me. That was a thing that we considered last week. For that which they had not heard shall they consider. As we read, he shall not be... He shall not fail nor be discouraged until he has said judgment in the earth and the isles, continents of Gentiles shall wait on his law, wait for his law, Isaiah 42, 4. Who hath believed our report? That conveys the preaching of a message, our report. What is the gospel? Our report of Christ. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now that second question answers the first one. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? What did Jesus say to Simon Peter in Matthew chapter 16? When he says, Whom say ye that I the Son of Man am? Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Christ say to Peter? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter understood the identity of Jesus Because the Father had revealed Christ to him. In Matthew chapter 11, we read that no man knows the Son but the Father. No man knows the Father but through the Son. We know this through revelation being revealed from God. Who hath believed our report? Those to whom the arm of the Lord, which is Christ... Hath been revealed. Grow up him, the suffering servant before the Father, as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. That means, as the flesh is concerned, as you read in the following clause, there is no beauty that should be desired him. There was nothing desirable about Christ from an earthly, worldly perspective. When you looked at him, He didn't look like he's so commonly depicted in Western art and literature and film. You know, he's always depicted being about 6'3", long, wavy, blonde hair, maybe medium brown hair, with piercing Western blue eyes and a chiseled jaw with a nice pointed chiseled nose. Wearing a white garment, head and shoulders above all of his disciples, beautiful to the natural eye. There's no indication that Jesus ever looked the way that men depict him. He was a first century Jew. He probably had curly black hair. And because scripture says that nature insists it's a shame for a man to have long hair, it probably wasn't long hair. It's probably bushy, short hair. He had a Beard, and they didn't have all of the ways to treat a beard in that day that we have today. It wasn't manicured the way you can go. And, you know, there's this shop that a lot of men that I know that have long beards like to go to, and they sit and massage your head, and they manicure your beard, and you come out of that thing looking like a celebrity hipster guru. They didn't have that in Jesus' day. 
He didn't look like they depict him in modern art and film. He had no natural beauty. If you look at the Jesus as depicted in media, he's a Jesus in form and stature. And I can sympathize with the desire to want to look at him and think he's so beautiful. Because listen, Jesus is beautiful, but not because of the flesh. When the natural eye would behold him, your run-of-the-mill carnal stranger, they didn't look at Jesus and say, that is a beautiful man. He was despised and rejected. The world hated him. Now, by the way, that man Christ Jesus was the most beautiful man who has ever walked this earth, but not because of any carnal reason. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, now notice that language, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So many times we think that if I were there at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, I wouldn't be one of those disciples that ran and hid. I wouldn't be one of those disciples that denied him. I wouldn't be one of those disciples who believed everything I knew and believed over the past three and a half years had come to an end and I was wrong. But the fact of the matter is we would be just like Peter. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times he denied him. And then as the rooster crowed the second time, he went out and he wept bitterly as he made eye contact with Christ as Jesus was being tried. I don't know him, Peter said. Now, Peter was willing to die in a blaze of glory. He takes out a sword and he takes the ear off the high priest's servant. Jesus said, put your sword up, man. They that live by the sword shall die by the sword. You don't know what spirit you're of. I came to this hour. This is why I'm here. But at that point in his life, Peter wouldn't suffer as a Christian or a martyr. He would. He would go to his death crucified upside down. Why upside down? Because he didn't feel himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. We would all be like Peter and the rest of these disciples. We would esteem him smitten of God and afflicted. Now, as we begin to consider the point of being in this passage, how Christ stood as our substitute, I want you to begin in verse 4 and notice this language of a transaction, if you will. There's something that he took that was ours, and there's something that he gave us that was his. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Notice the representation there. First of all, he hath borne our griefs. Whose griefs? Our griefs. He has carried, secondly, our sorrows. 
Whose sorrows? Our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. You may ask, I don't see the substitutionary nature of that. Notice the next verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him what? The iniquity of us all. God did lay on him the iniquity of us all when he judged him upon the cross of Calvary, for he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is penal substitutionary atonement. That concept, as we think about it being punitive, notice he hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is holy. I've said this countless times in your hearing. God is a God of judgment and justice. Because God is holy and God is a God of judgment and justice, God has to punish every single crime. Now, our society has gotten to the point where the punishment of crime is almost viewed in a negative light. That is the definition, not punishing crime. That is literally the definition of injustice. If a criminal gets off scot-free for murdering someone, you'd say injustice has occurred. It's amazing how the Perspective changes if you know someone who's a victim of a crime. What is it that the family of a victim wants? They want justice. If a criminal has killed someone and has been executed for that, what is it that they say after that execution has occurred? Justice has been served. God is a holy God of justice and judgment. Every single crime had to be punished. Now, we believe in the doctrines of grace here because Scripture emphatically declares it and teaches it. I was asked by a friend in college who was of a different religious persuasion, if, if I believe in the doctrine of election, that God chose people before the foundation of the world, then why did Jesus have to die? Because those people who were chosen were guilty of sin. Christ had to die to appease the wrath of his Father. Justice had to be served. And so Jesus, justice having to be served, Jesus agrees in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world, the Son of God, the Word of God, the second person in the Godhead agrees to come into this world and to die for sin, representing the sinner upon the cross of Calvary. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Us who? Notice the beginning of verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
Now, there's a sermon right there that we won't indulge. But just in brief, when Scripture uses the word sheep with reference to people, it always has reference to children of God. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall not perish. No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, as Jesus said to unbelieving Jews in John chapter 10. Regarding their unbelief, Jesus said, Why do you not believe? You believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice. As Jesus returns in the book of Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, he gathers all nations before him and he separates them the way that a shepherd divides between his sheep and the goats. He places the sheep on his right hand side. He says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The goats, those that are on the left hand side, he sends into punishment for their works, justice. Sometimes people say, I just want what's coming to me. No, you don't. No, you don't. I don't. My only hope is through Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment, and who shall declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Every single one of these statements is a prophecy. He opened not his mouth. He went as a lamb dumb before the shearers. He didn't argue. When they came to arrest him, he said, Whom seek ye? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And they fall backwards on the ground at the pronunciation of that divine name, I am, coming from the mouth of Christ. He could have summoned legions of angels to wipe out every last inhabitant on planet Earth. And yet he humbled himself and submitted unto death. Hebrews says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. What a mystery is that? He went as a lamb dumb before the shears. He was taken from prison and judgment. Who shall declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for transgression, transgression of God's people. He was stricken. It means he died. He made his grave with the wicked. He died suspended between two criminals. And with the rich in his death, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was placed in a borrowed tomb, a new tomb in which no man had ever laid. He had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. He was perfect and holy. He had to be perfect and holy to appease God's wrath. And so you see the next statement, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Sometimes people are offended at that statement. And they think of God the Father as some maniacal, cruel parent who is 
happy to hurt his son. But that isn't the sense of this text. So important for preachers to stand and read the law and give the sense of the text as we find in Nehemiah. God the Father is pleased in the sense that his wrath is appeased. His wrath is satisfied by the death of his son, who before the world began agreed to come into the world and die for sin. I was reading in a commentary the other day, someone asked a question about it online. It was a very interesting statement that God the Father in the Trinity in the three-in-one Godhead before the world began in the covenant of the grace, in the covenant of grace, was the representative of his word and the right and offended party. And I found that an, an interesting statement that his, his right was offended and violated. What does that mean? His righteous standard was violated when Adam violated the law of God. And Christ in the three-in-one Godhead, then represents us to his father, the offended party, whose right was violated. And he dies for our sin. The father was pleased to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Now wait, he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. He was esteemed, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, and he was taken from the land of the living. How then shall he prolong his days after bruising him? Because he raised him from the dead. And Christ Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death. You see that he has a portion being divided with the great because he poured out his soul unto death. In other words, for Christ, there is victory and triumph personally after even his death. How? Because he was resurrected. He bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. His transgressing sheep. Now I want you to turn over to the book of Leviticus chapter 16 as we bring our thoughts today to a close. Leviticus chapter 16 is the passage in the Old Testament law in which God institutes the day of atonement. As you turn there, I want to read for you a passage in Hebrews chapter 10 and remind you of something. Leviticus 16. Hebrews 10.1, as you're looking at Leviticus 16, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered, year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. 
The law was, as we learned last week, our schoolmaster, it was a shadow of good things to come. In those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Every time the bullock, the two, uh, the ram and the two goats were brought for the day of atonement, one goat is killed, one goat is let free. Talk about that in a minute. Every time that occurred, it reminded them of their sin. But, as we see, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So God's purpose in that was not to take away their sin, but to point to the one who could and to remind them of their sinfulness. In burnt offerings, well, back up to verse 5, Wherefore, when thou comest into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. He didn't offer the sacrifices of the Old Testament as a high priest, a concept which was discussed earlier in Hebrews. Rather, a body has been prepared for him to offer. What body? His body. How? Upon the cross of Calvary, under the wrath of God, suspended between heaven and earth as if rejected by both. Then said I, Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, sacrifice and burnt offerings thou wouldest not. I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish the second, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Leviticus 16 is the chapter in which we find the Feast of Atonement. And I want you to notice a few details about that in closing today. As far as the context and timing of this, the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. They offered strange fire. They offered in a way that God said not to do, hadn't said to do, rather. They invented a form of worship, and because of that, they died. Aaron was very discouraged at this. God means serious business in the Old Testament when he's giving his commandments. Why? Because it's revealing the severity of sin, and it's communicating unto us our sinfulness and what we deserve in and of ourselves and the sin-free, spotless nature of Christ. The Lord begins to tell Aaron to come not at all times in the holy place. You're going to come a certain time. You're going to come a certain way wearing a certain garment. I want you to come to the holy place and I want you to offer some animals on the Day of Atonement. You find the atonement several times mentioned in this chapter. First of all, to summarize for the sake of time, he was to offer a bullock. The bullock was to be offered for himself. Why? Because Aaron is a sinner. So the bullock had to be offered for Aaron. He was to take a ram, mature, strong, and offer it as a burnt offering following the offering of the two goats, as we'll consider, for the atonement. It would be a burnt offering for the people. One of the goats, he was to bring, and as you see here, look at verse 
6. Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, to make an atonement for his house, for himself and for his house. He shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on the which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat in the wilderness. Now there's a lot of foreshadowing of Christ in this passage. And we're not going to look at all of it. I read some commentary this week, no surprise. And the things that people had to say, there are preachers in church history that have made every single detail of this account something that foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. You have two goats. One is to be offered. One is to be the scapegoat. And they cast lots to see which is which. Casting of lots was a form of decision-making in that day. There's a proverb that says that God is in the casting of the lots. Not every time, certainly, but many times. There are several notable examples in Scripture of the casting of lots. What about the scapegoat? The goat that is the live goat, the scapegoat, would not be offered. It would not be killed. Now, John Gill points out that these two goats likely represent the two natures of Christ, one divine and one human. One that died, one did not. Christ's divine nature didn't die. He talks about how the ram is strong and mature like God, the ancient of days, mighty to save. And certainly so many things in here represent Christ. Verse 20, when he hath made an end of reconciling, remember how atonement and reconciliation in the New Testament come from the same word. When he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. Now, if you think Leviticus is dry and boring and why do I have to read this? What's the importance of it? After everything we've said about Christ having your sin imputed unto him, I want you to read this and I want you to think. And I believe that as you think, as you read, you will feel. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. Listen putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away into the hand of a fit man, by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. If you want an interesting read, go see what preachers used to say about the hand of the fit man and you'll find where they tried to make the fit man any and every conceivable character who was around the Lord Jesus. I don't know that there has to be a one-to-one equivalent. But what a vivid depiction we see here of our sins being imputed unto our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
the sins of Israel were in this ceremonial sense, and this points to Christ in a legal sense between us and God, the sins of Israel were placed upon the head of the scapegoat. And then a strong man would take the scapegoat out into the wilderness and let him go, not to slay him, but never to see him again. What does that communicate to us? That the sins are imputed, and this creature unto whom the sins are imputed is sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. The sins are forever gone through the offering of our Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom God placed our sins the way that Aaron placed the sins in this sacrifice upon the head of the scapegoat and let it go into the wilderness. This foreshadows the Lord Jesus taking our sin upon himself. We'll simply read Romans 5 as our closing remark. Verse 9, verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood. The goat that died, the priest was to take his finger dip it in the blood and apply it to all the items there in the holiest of holies seven times. Much more than being saved, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement.